How many of you brought your Bible with you? Will you hold up the Bible all over the building? And I want to ask you to join me, if you will, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter number 3, page 958. Uh, 958, if you have an old Schofield Bible, or the book of Habakkuk, chapter number 3. And I can't help you much except to say, go to the end of the Old Testament book of Malachi and hang a left and go back four or five books and you'll probably run into the book of Habakkuk, chapter number 3. And so you'll locate your place there. And I'll read some verses here in just a moment. Don't forget the Lord's Day. Hope you'll be much in prayer. Hopefully all the snow will be gone by Sunday. And we can come to church. I don't care if the snow's a foot, man, do you? And, uh, but anyway, we'll just take whatever happens. But uh, Lord willing, we'll have service here Sunday morning. And of course, please pray and ask the Lord to help us and meet with us and speak to our hearts this Lord's Day. Really, I really stumbled on the book of Habakkuk in my own personal just Bible reading. Not when I say stumbled, I really intended just to preach one message, and then when I got started in it, it seemed like I every Wednesday night went back to it. So now tonight is the uh, last message from the book of Habakkuk, but looking back on that now, I see how God directed me to this book for such a time as this. And because this has a great message for you and I, uh, especially, we're starting a brand new year, but then with all that's happened recently, and then of course all that today, and I'm rather grieved about all that. My heart is grieved about it. It really is. But with that being said, I hope the Lord will have a word for us here in this text tonight. All right, Habakkuk chapter number 3. And of course, his name means to wrestle or it means to embrace. And boy, he is in a wrestling match. Uh, with God in this book. And many times we, as was said a moment ago, we wrestle with God about certain things, prayers that seemingly don't get answered. Or uh, maybe, you know, under trying to understand how all things in our life work together for good. And uh, so we wrestle with all that, and he's wrestling with it. And I hope in these days that God has used this book to help us through these rather tumultuous times that we're living in. Look at verse 16. Here's what he said as he closes this book, verse 16. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the, vo at the, at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Now just reading all that, you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, I, I don't know if I come to church tonight to hear all that or not, but uh, there's a good message in this text tonight, and I trust God will help us, especially today. Help us with this text. Let's pray. Father, bless your word now, I pray. Help us tonight. Encourage our hearts because, Lord, not only is my heart grieved, I'm not the lone ranger. Lord, I'm sitting in a room tonight with a people, standing in a room where people are sitting that are just as grieved as I am. And I pray tonight there be a word from God. 
Lord, the prophet asked, Is there any word from the Lord? Or the king did, and Jeremiah said, There is. And I'm glad you have a word for us tonight. I don't think that we're in this text tonight by uh, just accident. I didn't just stumble into these verses. God, this text is here for your people tonight, and I pray it will help us and encourage our hearts. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, for the last three or four weeks, uh, three or four Wednesday evenings before the Christmas break, we were making our way through an out-of-the-way Old Testament book by the name of Habakkuk. If you remember, I've been calling old Habakkuk the, pro the prophet with a problem. And for the last several weeks, really what we've been doing is just listening in on a conversation. We've been eavesdropping on a conversation that took place between God and the prophet Habakkuk. I've told you before that prophets were normally people who spoke for God. But Habakkuk was a, pro a, pro a prophet who actually spoke to God. Because this whole book is nothing more than just Habakkuk speaking to God. Now, once again, just to remind us where we're at in his story, I've got to remind you that Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel was, if you remember at one time, was a united nation. But after the death of Solomon, the nation split in half. There was the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, referred to as Israel, and they had the capital city by the name of Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom of Israel, referred to as Judah, and they had as their capital city the city of Jerusalem. Well, as of Habakkuk's time, the northern kingdom had already been carried off into the captivity by the Assyrians. Because of their outright, in-your-face rebellion against God, they flaunted their sin and their idolatry in the face of God till finally God said, man, this is enough. And he called in the Assyrians to come against the northern kingdom of Israel and to carry them off into the Assyrian captivity. Well, you would think that the southern kingdom would have saw what happened to their brothers to the north and they would have learned from that experience. However, we know that not only did Judah fail to learn from their experience of their brothers up north, they actually repeated that experience. Judah themselves in Habakkuk's day was just as bad with their sin and idolatry and wickedness as the northern kingdom was. And if you remember back in chapter number 1, we kind of have a rundown of all the things that was going on in the land of Judah in Habakkuk's day. We're, we're told back in chapter number 1, the people were permissive. They were very, very permissive. We were told back in chapter number 1 that the law of God had become paralyzed. The word that Habakkuk used for it is the word slight. It was paralyzed. But then we're also told back in chapter 1 that the leaders of the nation had become polluted. Now, does that sound just a little bit familiar to you? I mean, you think about people being permissive. You think about the law of God being paralyzed or set aside. And you think about the leaders of the land being polluted. Kind of sounds a whole lot like the day and age in which you and I are living in. As far as the leaders, I, you probably have already heard this this week, but this week on Monday when Congress convened, they had their annual prayer. It was given by a Democratic congressman from the state of Missouri. His name was Emmanuel Cleaver. And when he got through praying, he said something of the nature like this, to the monotheistic God of Brahma, or the God of, of many gods and of many peoples and of many religions, and then he said this, Amen or a woman. 
Now, I'm telling you something, friend. We're just right on the verge of seeing a whole lot of that happen in our nation coming down the pike. You know, there's a lot of simula uh, similarities between Habakkuk's day and our day. Well, let me tell you something. What God did in such a time as that, God raised up two prophets to confront his people of, uh, uh, because of their sin. One of those prophets was named Jeremiah. We have a long book in our Bible. 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet that God called to confront Judah uh, with their sin. But the other prophet was this prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And old Habakkuk began looking around, and he saw all the wickedness and all of the sin that was going on in the land, and he started praying about it. He started asking God to do something about it. But every time he prayed, don't you know every time he prayed, seemingly all he got was a busy signal. There was no answer. There was no place to leave a callback number. There was no place to leave a voice message. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed, but there was no answer. God, it seemed, or so it seemed, had become totally unconcerned and uninvolved in all that was going on. So with all that was going on around, around Habakkuk, we find that there were some things going on within Habakkuk. I mean, he was scratching his head and he just couldn't understand why God seemingly was allowing all of this to happen. So as he looked around at all the problems, he developed problems within and he started doubting God. He started doubting God. He thought God didn't care. He thought God was totally oblivious to it all. Now, before we get too hard on Habakkuk, if we all would admit it, there have all been times in our life that we've seen a problem, we've experienced a problem, we've had a problem, and we've prayed about that problem, and we prayed again, and we prayed some more, but when the answer didn't come, when we thought it ought to have come, we started doubting God. God, do you really see what's happening? God, do you really care like you say you care? God, are you really there? We, like Habakkuk, began to doubt God. Well, let me tell you something. Right in the midst of all that doubt, God broke through in Habakkuk's life, and God begins to tell Habakkuk, no, no, I've heard your prayer. In fact, what you don't know is years before you even started praying that prayer, Habakkuk, I have already been working on an answer. You know, God is always active. God is always moving. God is always working whether we believe it or, or not. So he answers Habakkuk's prayer like this. He says, now Habakkuk, what you don't know is for years I have been pre preparing to bring down against my people the nastiest, most wicked, most aggressive, most fierce nation that there is on the earth. I've been working the whole time to bring them down, and I'm going to use that nation, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as a scourge to whip my people. Habakkuk, you've been praying. I've been working. The answer to your prayer is this. God is, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to discipline my people. So Habakkuk finally got his answer. But it wasn't the answer that he was looking for at all. And this answer that he gets throws Habakkuk into a, a, a tailspin. He begins to think like this, how can this be? How can God use a nation that is steeped in wickedness to chastise a nation that is not as bad as they are? You see, back in Habakkuk's day, if you were to put Judah on one side of the scale 
and the Chaldeans on the other side of the scale, when it comes to the subject of morality, the, the Judah, people from Judah were much, much, much more moral than the Chaldeans were, and Habakkuk just couldn't understand. If that's the case, how can God use these evil people to punish these people that are not as evil as they are? Really, his, his question is this, God, I don't get it. How can you let the bad guys win? So now he stopped doubting God, and now he started debating God. He's arguing with God. You ever argue with God before? Let me tell you something. That's an argument you're not going to win. I've done it enough to know that it gets you nowhere to argue with God. But how many times have we done that? We prayed and prayed and prayed, and then when God gives an answer, and it's not the answer that we're looking for, we start saying, God, do you really know what you're doing? And we start debating God. You ever done that before? Maybe you're praying about a situation and God steps in and does something about that situation and you think, God, why did you do that for? And you begin debating God. You know, our Bible does say this right here. In the book of Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 8, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's ways are not our ways. Why the next verse says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways and God's thoughts higher and holier than our ways are. Listen, you can't put God, put him on a, on a, on a test tube and slide him under a microscope and figure God out. You can't put God in a box and try to figure out what God is doing. All we need to do is just trust God that he'll always do the right thing. So Ohoabeka, he's been doubting God. He's been debating God. He's been arguing with God until finally, and when we come to chapter number 3, he's come full circle because he's no longer doubting God. He's no longer debating God. Finally, as the book closes, he is desiring God. Now, the great takeaway, watch this, the great takeaway, the great truth that we learn from this little book is this. God allows us to see what we see, experience what we experience, feel what we feel in order to draw us closer to Him. Can I read that one more time? God lets you see. Remember back in chapter number 1, Habakkuk said, Lord, how long wilt thou cause me to behold violence? He's seeing it. And he goes on to talk about what he's feeling about that. It's going on in this situation. And God allows us to see what we see. He allows us to go through the experiences that we go through. He allows us to feel what we feel on the inside of us. And all the while, all he's trying to do is to get us to say, y'all come on up here and just get closer to me. Can I stop and tell you this? When you and I start having problems in life, when we start having trials in this walk of life, when the troubles and the perplexities come, those troubles and perplexities will either drive us to God or drive us from God. They'll either draw us into His presence or they'll drive us from God. His presence. You know, it's sad, but it's so true. Isn't, isn't it the case many times when the troubles and the perplexities of life come and things begin to start to happen to us and we don't understand why they're happening and we look around and we think to ourselves, how is this God's plan? How in the world can this fit in the will of God? How many times do you and I, instead of being drawn into God's presence, we begin to drift away from God's presence? Well, let me tell you something about Oabaca. He's come full circle now. I mean, he's no longer doubting. He's no longer debating. 
Now he's desiring. And so he just comes to God. And by the way, I still think he's probably got more questions than he does answers. I still think there's a lot he don't get. There's a lot he don't understand. But I tell you, as the book closes, here's what he does. In essence, say, I'm just going to have to trust God that he'll always do what's right. Now, if you look at verse 16, here's what he says. Now, the Chaldeans are coming. You know, in our day, was it Paul Revere that hit the streets? The British are coming. The British are coming. Well, in Habakkuk's day, the call was, the Chaldeans are coming. The Chaldeans are coming. Wicked people, ungodly people, fierce people. In verse 16, here's what he says. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled in myself. You know what he's saying in essence? Man, to think that those people are coming down here and to know how those people are, how fierce that they are, how mean and wicked that they are, to think that they're coming down here into this land scares me to death, Habakkuk said. And by the way, that is an understatement. He said, man, I'm scared to death to think about God using them, bringing them down here into this land. They're going to come down and invade us with all these people and with all these troops. I shudder to think what they're going to do to us. I am scared to death. But now we come to the verses I want you to get a hold of tonight. And that's verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19. Can I be honest with you tonight? I really don't even have any points per se to the message but I do want to draw your attention to a couplet of words here. You know when you go through the Bible, you know when you go through the Bible, there are a few Bible couplets. There are words that are usually found together or somewhat together throughout the Bible, and they're used together, and we call them Bible couplets. For instance, you know over the New Testament we run into this, this couplet, this duet of words, 16 or 17 times in the writings of the Apostle Paul, he'll say something like this, Grace and peace be unto you. Normally, when you find the word grace in a verse, not far from grace, you're going to find the word peace. Those words are Bible couplets, grace and peace, like I said, 16 times in his writings, he uses that duet of words. By the way, grace. Did you know what the word grace, we get our English word charis. You ever heard of a charismatic? How many of you ever heard of a charismatic? A charismatic? Well, the word grace is the word charis. That's where we get our English word Karen from. If you ever run into a lady and her name is Karen, look it up. Her name means grace. Karen, charis. Grace, and then peace. You know, the word peace is, is, is the, word, the Greek word irene, and it's where we get our English name Irene from. So when Paul says, grace and peace be unto you, he's saying, Karen and Irene be unto you. And by the way, guess what? Did you know that when usually where you'll find Karen and Irene, you'll always run into their sister, by the way, her name's Joey, Karen and Irene got a sister by the name of Joy, and where Karen and Irene show up, Joy is not far behind. They're word couplets. Well, I want to tell you something, man. This blew me away, but I found a word couplet in the book of Habakkuk that is used in, this, in this, these closing verses 
that is used in other places in the Bible. And here they are. Notice, do you have, if you want to circle these two words, the, verse 17, the word although, and verse 18, the word yet. Although or though and yet. Can I tell you something? That couplet is found in different places in the Bible. Bear with me for just a moment. I just want to show a couple of these places that those two words, though and yet, are used in our Bible. First of all, right here, look at this, Job 13, verse 15. Job said this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job had went through a, 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 just a, 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 a bunch of problems and troubles in his life. His family was gone. His livestock was destroyed. His homes were destroyed. He had to go to the funeral home, pick out t uh, coffins for his children. I mean, man, he had trouble upon trouble. But he said this, I'll just be honest with you all, though he slay me, though he slay me, though he brings all these troubles in my life and eventually it causes me death, don't matter, yet I'm going to trust him. Though and yet. Look at this. Same book. Look at this one. Job 19, 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Boy, that's a good verse, isn't it? You say, preacher, what's about to happen in America? I don't know, but I know one thing. My Redeemer liveth. Amen. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Now, God, remember this. Job didn't have the New Testament light that you and I have. In fact, can I tell you this? Job is the oldest book in our Bible. The oldest book in the Bible. So he didn't have Paul's writing about resurrection, the dead in Christ rising first. But I mean, way back, even in, in the early days, I'm talking about, I'm talking about way back, years and years and centuries and uh, ago, Job said, I know one thing, my Redeemer's alive, and one day he's going to stand on this earth. In other words, can I put that in New Testament language? He rose from the grave, and thank God he's coming back again some of these days. Then he went on to say this. And though, oh, there it is again. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, he said, I'm going to die. They're going to slap me in a grave, throw dirt on top of me. By the way, don't burn me, bury me. Don't be mad at me. I love you. But man, I tell you, I don't want to get burned, praise the Lord. I'll get buried. Amen. And they're going to bury me some of these days, he said, and the skin worms are going to come up and they're going to destroy my body. Yet, there's going to come a day I'm going to see God. Now remember, you say, preacher, he said that in his flesh. He's going to see. Remember, he, ain't, he didn't have the light in the, uh, that we got in the New Testament now, a glorified body. What a great verse. Look at this verse, though and yet. Look at this one. This is a good one. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish. Hold it. He's saying, man, we're dying. Though we're dying. What is it we say around here? Our hearts only have so many beats. Our feet only have so many steps. Our lungs only have so many breaths. Our outward man is perishing. Yet, the old me is dying, the old body is dying. But thank God every day when I get up and stick my nose in the book and I pray and talk to God, this old outward man may be perishing, but that inward man, yet the inward man, the part of me is going to live forever, is renewed day by day. And then what about this? Look at this one. Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believe him. I've never seen Jesus with the natural eye, yet I believe. 
You've never seen him. I'm not Oral Roberts. I ain't seen a nine-foot hunt, nine-hundred-foot-tall Jesus standing in a room that was only a nine-foot ceiling. Boy, he's going to have to be all bent over in that room, ain't he? I hadn't seen him with the natural eye, yet I know that he lives. And Habakkuk simply says this as he closes his book. Although, verse 17, yet, verse 18. So here, if I had points, here would be my two points. Number one, although, the word of devastation. Now he goes in verse number 17, he says, although, though, and then he starts laying out the most terrible thing that could ever happen. In verse number 17, he says, as though the fig tree shall not blossom. Now he's talking about, here comes these Chaldeans, they're going to overrun this place. Man, I'm telling you, it's going to be bad. And he said, boy, the fig tree is not going to blossom. Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield no, no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stall. So there you have it. He said there's going to be no figs. There's going to be no fruit. There's going to be no fields. And there's going to be no flock. Now you've got to understand, when he said that, you have to go back to the economy of the nation of Judah at this particular time. You see, in our Western way of thinking, that don't really sound too awful bad. Well, man, that's going to be a drought. You know, the trees are not going to have much on them to eat, and boy, some of the cows are going to die. It doesn't sound, but can I tell you something? The economy of Judah was based upon agriculture. So, I mean, when he said this in this text, when he said, man, there's not going to be any figs or fruit or fields or flock, what he's literally saying is, man, there ain't going to be no flesh. Ain't nobody going to be alive because there ain't going to be nothing to eat. I mean, he is describing the worst possible thing that could ever, ever happen. He's describing complete and other de devastation. In fact, what he's just describing in Judah that's going to happen to Judah when the Babylonians come down would make the Great Depression in the United States of America in the early 20, uh, late 20, uh, 20s and early 30s of last century. What he's just described would make that time look like a time of great plenty and prosperity. It's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to Judah. Everything is going to be gone. It is total and complete devastation. Let me, let me put this. Now, you say, preacher, I ain't getting it. Let me put verse 17 in Forsyth County language. So here's what he's saying in verse 17. Though, though I just lost my job, though my spouse just walked out on me, though the doctor just diagnosed me with cancer, Though my children have lost their minds, though Biden is going in the White House, and the Democrats just won control of the Senate. I'm telling you, that is complete and utter devastation. How do you feel today? How do you feel today? Can I tell you something? He's saying, though all of this has happened, that's the though of devastation. I mean the worst possible thing that could happen to us. I know short of maybe a nuclear war and all of us being killed, but I'm telling you, it's bad. I mean, it's tough, ain't it? I'm, I, how do you feel? Well, the only word I can say I feel is I feel grieved. My, I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel disappointed. I feel bewildered. I feel all of that. I feel all that. I feel everything 
that you feel. Although all this has happened. But then we come to verse 18 and he says this, yet. I'm calling the word yet the word of determination. He said, man, this is so bad. <laughs> he said, man, this is the worst thing that possible happened to us. But he said there in verse 17, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Today, when I got home, I had to go, went to a funeral today, and so I didn't get home till probably, I don't know, it was 4 o'clock. Cut the news on because I wanted to watch and see how much snow we was going to get, and I was automatically directed to Washington, D.C. and in the news. In fact, every channel that you turned it on outside of maybe MeTV or something was talking about what was going on in Washington, D.C. And I got to tell you that I'm, I, I feel what those people up there feel. Don't be mad at me, but I got to tell you, I feel like we got ripped off. I really do. I, I feel like we got, I feel like they stuck it to us this time. I feel like that. I feel all that frustration and anger, and, and, and I, feel, I feel all that rage on the inside of me. I feel, I feel all of that that all those people up there feel. But I got to tell you something. Attacking buildings and breaking glass and fighting the police is not God's plan for His people. I mean, I, I, feel, I, I feel all that they feel, but I, I don't think breaking windows and assaulting the Capitol and threatening lives, I don't feel like that's God's plan. Look at me. Doing that lowers us to the same level of what that crowd's been doing all year long. And don't be mad at me, but I did feel like it was a little bit hypocritical when Joe Biden come out and said, I call for an end to all of this. Why hadn't he been calling for an end for it all year long? Why has he been silent all year long? Now all of a sudden, he, we need to be united. We need to stand. Why didn't you say that? Why, why didn't you say that back in March? Hey, where was that in July when they're burning Portland down? Hey, when they're throwing cinder blocks through people's windows and assaulting people, why hadn't you been saying that all along? I get it, man. I'm mad about all that. But I still don't think the answer is for you and me to go to Washington, throw some ropes over the Capitol building, climb up. I, sure I was praying the whole time. I was watching, please don't let none of this be our church members, Lord. I sure hope I don't see anybody on there I know. Because I know some of y'all been going up there to those rallies, and I thought, oh, dear Jesus. That's why I'm so glad they never put live PD on here in Winston-Salem because I thought on Wednesday night we'll see some of our people riding around and being pulled over by the police. We'll see some of our choir members get out of the car. I thought, thank the Lord that we don't have live PD in Winston-Salem. But I feel all that. Can I tell you, inside, I want to do that. I'm mad. I'm hurt. I'm grieved. I'm frustrated. I get it. But that ain't what God wants us to do. You say, preacher, then what is the answer? You tell me. I don't have an answer for it. I tell you what I think we're just going to have to do. I think we're just going to have to trust God. And, and though the worst possible thing could happen to us, to me, has happened, yet, verse, 17, verse 18, I'll rejoice in the Lord. 
Yet, verse 18, I'll just joy in the God of my salvation. I can't joy. I can't, I can't rejoice over what's going on in our land. I sure can't rejoice in Biden presidency and, and the, the war, warlock down there in Georgia and Koala. I can't rejoice in all that. But I can rejoice in God my salvation. I can rejoice in the Lord. I don't like it one bit, but I, what am I going to be able to do about it? I prayed, I pray, you prayed, we begged God, God intervened, God help us, God do something about this situation. We prayed and prayed and prayed. So ladies and gentlemen, I guess I'm just going to have to announce to you tonight, evidently, this is the will of God for our nation. Maybe God's using this to expedite the process to get us out of here. Maybe that's what's about to happen. Maybe Jesus is getting ready to come. Maybe America, God is now moving us off the off the stage of being the leading nation because we all know that in the end of time, America's nowhere to be found and maybe this is the process now. Little by little, God's slipping us out of the picture. So China and Russia and Germany and Iran and Iraq, those nations can come forward and really take the, the, the stage at the end of time. We know that's got to happen. Tell me where America's at in the Bible. I, now, I get it. I find some places we can apply Scripture to America, but I, I can't find anywhere specifically where God said, okay, here's the United States. About the only place that I can even come close to finding reality of America is in Ezekiel 38, a nation called Dedan. That's about the closest I can come to it right there. And literally then, there's just a very weak protest going on there when Russia moves against Israel. We're moving out of the way. We've been preaching this for years. Jesus is coming and things have got to change. Now, they, now they're here. And bless God, we want to go up there and blow Washington up. We've been preaching. We've been knowing this for years, haven't we? So we want to go up there and throw a rope around Congress and drag them down here and beat the fire out of them. It's God's plan, folks. And you can be mad at me if you want to. All preacher, you're just giving up. I ain't giving up. I'm looking up. Evidently, this is it. So here's what we're going to do. Although all this has happened, yet I'm going to rejoice. Yet I'll show up at church Sunday. Yet I've already paid my tithes for this coming Sunday. Yet I'm going to preach. Yet I'm going to pray. Yet I'm going to call and invite and knock on doors and try to get others to come. Yet I'm going to do all of that, even though... There's no figs, no fields, no fruit, no flesh. None of that's happening yet. We just got to keep on living for God, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And by the way, as I close, look at verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. I mean, you ain't, listen, you ain't serving the Republicans, are you? They're going to let you down every time. The Lord God is our strength. Verse, 18, verse 19, he'll make my feet like hinds' feet. He'll make me to walk upon mine high places. Man, I tell you what, God wants us to move on up. This ain't the time to quit and get mad and, and fuss and cuss and kill and cut. Now it's time just look up, just rejoice. We're, we're, we're made out of more than that, aren't we? Just because we don't get our way don't mean that we're going to quit, does it? We're stronger than that, aren't we? Let's just rejoice in God. Jesus is coming. And all this may have happened, 
yet will just rejoice in the Lord our salvation. Well, let's pray. Father, help us tonight. Please, please help us.